Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and right around Australia on the Community Radio Network, each week we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. House prices are surging around the world. In Australia, house prices are climbing at their fastest annual rate in 17 years. A combination of low interest rates make borrowing money attractive, along with government stimulus money in the economy, a small number of properties on the market, and a strong demand from potential buyers. To be fair, it always feels like house prices are surging in Sydney or Melbourne. So how can we change this? What policy levers can be pulled to burst the bubble and make housing affordable for more Australians. To discuss this, I was joined earlier by Janet Gurr, Associate Professor with the UTS School of Built Environment, Matt Grudnoff, Senior Economist at the Australia Institute, and Saul Eslake, Economist at Corinna Economic Advisory. The Domain House Price Report from June this year highlights what it calls a perfect storm of factors that have led to the current increase in house prices. Matt, can I get you just to talk about what these factors are that have led to the perfect storm? Um, I think it's mainly been driven by uh, a recent drop in interest rates. Certainly the the most recent price increase has has, um, been driven by that. What we see is every time interest rates fall, we see house prices go up. And this this shouldn't be surprising. When you you want to go and buy a house, basically what you do is is you go to the bank and you ask them, how much can I I borrow? And then with that figure in mind, you go to auctions and, and you base it on that. So if interest rates go down, the bank says, well, you can borrow more. So if everybody shows up to the auction with more money in their pocket, then obviously the price goes up. And that's what we're seeing driving recent um, property price increases. Um, I think also that the the increase in property prices is starting to drive the investors back into the market. They were kind of pushed out by um, sort of regulatory work where um, the banks were directed not to lend as much to to, to investors um, and to cap that. They they went away when the recession came. They got rid of those. Um, And now because prices are rising, investors are going, well, this is a great place to jump into. And um, we're seeing um, more recently uh, the investor finance going up. Um, And initially we saw first home buyer sales actually increase during the the, um, recession, but they're starting to now fall as investors move back into the market and prices continue to increase. If we look over kind of 20-year period, I think investor demand has been the thing that has underlined all the sort of increase. We've kind of moved away from this idea that um, housing, I mean, Menzies thought that the best way to to deal with, um, in part to deal with social sort of inclusion was to um, have people invest in the neighbourhood that they lived in. So if they owned their own home, essentially they'd be less likely to be out chucking bricks and and Molotov cocktails because they had an incentive that the neighbourhood they lived in did well. So that was the old school liberals. I think the new school liberals kind of think that um, housing is an investment good. It's a way you grow your wealth. Um, And the current incentives, tax incentives through negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount certainly reflect that. Um, and I think we're, what we're seeing is, is this new demand in for, for investors entering the market is, is one of the big drivers of house price increases. 
I guess I'll put this question open to everybody. Is it necessarily such a bad thing that house prices are so high? Well, I guess, uh, Toby, the answer to that question depends on whether you own a property or not. (laughs) If you are one of the 11 million or so Australians who owns at least one property, and especially if you're part of the 2 million or so Australians who own more than one property, then you think rising house prices are a fabulous thing. And for you, they probably are. But if you're one of the increasing minority of Australians, and it's getting to the point where we're talking about a majority of Australians under the age of 45 who doesn't own any property at all, then this is a very bad thing. But the problem is that politicians can count. Um, They know for all the wailing and gnashing of teeth that they indulge in about the difficulties facing young home buyers getting their first foot on the property market ladder, that in any given year, there will be on average about 100,000 of them who succeed in doing it. And the moment they do, they join the 11 million people who already own at least one home and thus who have a vested interest in prices going up. If by some fluke, um, the, the useless policies that politicians introduced when talking about home affordability actually did reduce house prices, you would see politicians rush to legislate things that made house prices go back up again. There, is, there are no politicians, or you know, certainly not in the major parties, who want house prices to go down. Um, and also, one other thing is, is that this idea that um, people who own their own home are interested in house prices going up, I think is very true, but it's not necessarily in their best interest that house prices go up. If, if you've if you got a young couple, they own, uh, they've got into the market, they're paying off a mortgage, they own their own home, they might think that house prices going up is a good thing. But, you know, if in five years they want to upgrade to a larger house, sure, they can sell their current house for more because house prices have gone up, but then they've got to live somewhere, they've got to buy another house. And if they're upgrading to a larger house because, you know, they're planning on on starting a family or something like that, then those house prices have gone up too. It's really only people who are investors, that is that they own multiple properties that benefit from rising house prices, or um, people who are downgrading. So maybe retirees who are selling the family home and downgrading to a smaller house, they could also benefit from rising house prices. But So on top of that, the government also benefits from the house price goes up. Yeah, because the land tax, you know, the stamp duties, uh, everything's based on the prices, right? So there will be increased revenue for the government as well. So you're talking about the, um, the disadvantaged group or really are the low-income and medium-income families. And then the first, uh, you know, the young generations who just coming out to the, to the, you know, to their first job. And they are the minority group that is have difficulties in the market. Why has it become orthodoxy then that grants for first home buyers that or, or new home buyers are this way into the market? You know, in the recent budget, there's been expansion of these programs. How does this come about and why has this been the case as opposed to direct funding of supply for housing stock? Here's a little bit of history that most people don't know. And I know it because 40 years ago, I was federal president of the Young Liberals, that in 1963, John Howard 
who at that time was president of the New South Wales Young Liberals, managed to convince Sir Robert Menzies, as he then was, to promise at the election held at the end of that year, a first home buyer's grant. You know, prior to that point, as Matt said, the emphasis of government policy had been on boosting supply. And the interesting thing is that ever since just before the 66 census, federal government policy started to move away from boosting supply of housing towards beginning with the first first homeowners grant, inflating the demand for housing, the home ownership rate has gone down to, I think at the 2016 census, the lowest it had been since the census of 1954. And for people aged 40 or under, under lower than it had been at the census of 1954. I wouldn't be surprised if when the 2021 census results that we're now filling in uh, come out around this time next year, that the home ownership rate among people under 40 turns out to be lower than it was in 1947. Um, and it's actually hard to think of any area of public policy in Australia where governments have kept doing the same thing in the face of more than 50 years of incontrovertible evidence that it doesn't work as the policy of giving cash grants to would-be homebuyers in the belief that it boosts the home ownership rate. I mean, the home ownership rate has been going down ever since they started doing that. But the reason they keep doing things that appear so directly to counteract their stated objectives is because there are lots of votes in it. If we look at um, recent APRA data, it, it appears that almost 42% of across all borrowers had a loan to value ratio of 80% or more. Given the current situation, so we've got low interest rates, um, we've got cash stimulus in the economy, we've got high demand, and we've got a sense of young people feel like, if I don't strike now, I may miss out. Is there precarity in incentivizing buyers with limited savings through, you know, this first home buyers grant where you only need 5% of, uh, of a for a deposit to take on a potential lifelong mortgage right now when interest rates are low? Because there's a chance they're not going to be low forever, right? Or, or are they? Are we setting ourselves up for future turmoil through these policies? Well, you know, Toby, you might have thought that someone would have remembered what happened in the United States in the three or four years leading up to the financial crisis when there had been almost an explosion in lending to people on next to zero deposits. That didn't turn out so good you know, for, for the people who bought homes on those terms, for the US financial system and for the global economy. You know, that gave us the worst recession that the world had seen since the Great Depression until the one that we're just struggling to come out of now. But it would seem that although that's only, what, 15 years ago, uh, the designers of economic policy here in Australia have just completely forgotten about it or pretended that it didn't happen. So that we are once again in, you know, encouraging people to take out mortgages and buy homes with deposits of 2% of their own money. I mean, I just think this is crazy. I think the government, right, they got a good intention to helping the younger generation to get into the market or the first home buyer go into the market. But, uh, you know, this is based on the assumption, right, there's a property price that we go start all the time. But on the other side, right, and the property price not always goes up. If, if you can see the um, US, right, and financial crisis, 
the price goes down. The question we need to ask is the only way the government to push, give the money to push the young generation to the home ownership, right? Could be a better uh, program, for example, rental housing, stable rental housing uh, market can also help in the households, right? Whether they have to be going to the home ownership. On the other hand, right, there are a number of other factors they could, the government could consider. For example, right, so we're talking about the main factors that impact the price goes up, which is the interest rates, lower interest rate, higher inflations, right? So what about, we can do something about to stop the investments and push down some hits from the investors. That's from demand side. On the other hand of our supply side, we are, you know, building so many houses, right? In the last few years, but price still goes up very, very high. And the one of the reasons is that there are plenty apartment there, but household, they don't want it. They don't want to live in the apartment because they're not used to, the kids have nowhere to play. The type of the property they provide should be suitable what demands, right? Need, right what the market needs. According to uh, the National Housing Finance and Investment Corporation, that supply is up in terms of construction. Dwelling construction is going up. There's a forecast that there'll be massive structural oversupply of homes next year. Why is it still that supply in the market doesn't quite match with the supply in terms of construction? In many cases, the new supply is coming on in places where people don't want to live. You know, in the outer suburbs of our big cities where because of failures of transport policy, you're committing yourself to, you know, commutes of an hour or more at each end of the day. Over the last 25 years, people appear to have expressed a strong preference for living in cities, in the centre of cities. I mean, some people have made compromises with their tastes and accepted apartments in order to do that rather than expecting to have a big yard outside. But what we're also seeing post-COVID is an increasing number of people who are contemplating moving to smaller regional towns and cities where if they're able to work from home, they don't have to contemplate a two-hour or longer commute to and from the office every day. I think what's driving the faster increase in prices and especially rents in regional areas than in Sydney and Melbourne in particular, is that there's a shortage of housing in regional areas because for the last hundred years, people have been moving away from them to the big cities. And if that is actually going to reverse, then we're going to have a different type of mismatch between housing supply and demand that could be reflected in another set of pricing anomalies. New Zealand have also dealt with a similar issue with housing prices, and their response has been to get rid of their own version of negative gearing as part of their policy mix. Would getting rid of negative gearing here in Australia solve the problem of house prices? One of the reasons why it will be part of the solution is because it will represent a meaningful step back from a suite of policies that have served only to inflate the demand for housing. Particularly when you remember that something like 70% of the investment purchases are of existing properties. 
rather than of new ones. So defenders of negative gearing like to say, among other things, that it helps stimulate increases in the supply of rental housing. Well, that might be true if, as Labor had proposed prior to the last election, negative gearing were to be restricted to investors who bought or paid for the construction of new dwellings. Uh, but they don't. Most of them are established dwellings. So all that does is inflate the price of them and then create demand for someone to rent it because that person hasn't been able to buy it because he or she hasn't enjoyed the interest subsidies that investors get through the tax system. But uh, you know, even though I think that would be helpful and abolishing first-time owner grants, AKA second home vendor grants would also be helpful, um, governments need to do things on the supply side as well. And you know that could include building more houses directly or at least financing directly the construction of more houses that can be used as social housing for long-term affordable rental, which governments in this country of both persuasions used to do. It could mean reducing some of the obstacles that state and local government planning policies put in the way of the private sector when it wants to increase the supply of housing. And it certainly should include changes to the property tax regime of the sort that the ACT government has been doing for the last decade and which the New South Wales government, to its credit, is at least talking about, but which other governments around the country appear to regard as a bridge too far. Yeah, I don't, I don't think one policy, right, you just remove the negative gearing, it does not necessarily to, uh, in, you know, reduce the house prices. The recent studies from the New South Wales uh, University uh, Professor Hall they do the modeling, right? And they find reduce the uh, negative gearing, we only reduce 1.2% of the property price. So what is the 1.2%, right? And that represents a 1.2 or 1.2% increase now in every month, right? So it does not really uh, affect very much in my personal view. The point is not, I think, to advocate for policies that would cause house prices to fall. You know, the, the lesson of the United States, Ireland, Spain, uh, and other places where property prices fell a lot in the financial crisis is that that causes an awful lot of economic harm. You know, we don't want a big dramatic fall in property prices. What we want, I think, what would be helpful is for property prices to stop going up. Or if they do go up, at least to go up at a slower rate than incomes so that the ratio of house prices to incomes can decline over time and thus housing affordability given unchanged interest rates can improve and getting rid of negative gearing and reducing the capital gains tax discount would help achieve that objective. In other words, if landlords were en masse to sell their properties because they couldn't get tax privileges in exchange for keeping them, then there would be a significant drop in the demand for rental housing from people who were then able to buy homes in order to live in themselves. What's the problem? Well, the problem, of course, is, as Janet correctly says, there's an awful lot of high-income earners and influential people who currently have their snouts in this particular trough, and they want to keep them there and they have more sway with both governments 
and parties who want to be the government than people at the other end of the spectrum who were forced to rent for all of their lives. In a discussion earlier in the year, uh, the APRA chief, Wayne Byers, said that it wasn't his job to ensure that housing was affordable. Instead, that he viewed his mandate as to protect the integrity of the banking system. Why do you think APRA is so hesitant to step in in this manner? Yes, it's not his job to do anything about housing affordability. That's true. What his job is is to regulate the financial system in such a way that lending continues to be responsible, having regard to the potential consequences of irresponsible lending. And I would argue allowing a significant increase in the proportion of loans that are made at high LVRs, or if they actually published information on this so that we could know it, or otherwise high debt-to-income ratios, which the RBNZ publishes data on, but APRA apparently doesn't see any need to, and then uh, also maybe taking some action against uh, the rise in interest-only lending, which is a very risky form of lending, or indeed as APRA itself did in, I think, about 2013 or 14, put a limit on the rate of growth of lending to investors. Yeah, which they did. And these are things which APRA's counterparts in other parts of the world, you know, in Singapore, in Taiwan, and in New Zealand, among others, you know, have been perfectly happy to do. And in my view, APRA has been asleep at the wheel. You know, they have done nothing while we have begun to see the early signs of a potentially worrying loosening of credit standard. Yeah, I totally agree with Saul that APRA really, they do not have a responsibility for stimulate, helping the affordable housing, but they got the full responsibility to stabilize the economy and also make the economic sustainability. Just say sustainable to develop, stabilize the, you know, the, uh, the markets, not only include the property markets or the economic as a whole. So the main issues now is to say, Investors who take the advantage of a low income and high income owners who take the advantage of a low, lower uh, interest rate to go into the markets. So therefore, they will stimulate the property price goes up. So to tackle these issues, right, Apple actually can do something like um, reduce the, you know, increase the long to value ratios or reduce the long to value ratios, increase the downtime down payments for the second home buyers and third home buyers, you could reduce the um, lendings to even less and four home buyers are even going to reduce the investment property, um, you know, the, the lendings to increase their equity in that way, in that way right? They could actually uh, stop, you know, the investment activities, right? They, that's the one of the way they can do it. So I wish that the APRA could exercise their, you know, their role to helping the economics stabilize. We've seen that um, in the past week, uh, a federal parliamentary committee into housing affordability was announced. And, and this with a focus on both property taxes, but also on planning and zoning regulations. We haven't really talked about those much in this discussion. How do you think the current planning regulations impact on the market and on housing supply? Well, they almost by definition restrain the rate of growth of supply. I think there is a case to be made that 
some aspects of planning laws, perhaps more in Sydney than in other cities, do give more weight to the interests of those who already own properties and insufficient weight to the interests of those who don't, a way ought to be found to achieve a better balance. You know, some places they could consider uh, planning for the rental properties, right? So encourage the um, institutional investors participate to, you know, like equity funds, investors participate to the direct investments on rental housing. Households not necessary to encourage to fully own houses, right? If they have, um, you know, when they have a low income or the first time get a job, you know, have not enough savings. But uh, if there is a very good uh, sustainable rental properties and the good quality rental properties allow them to stay, there will be uh, reduced uh, pressure for the home ownership uh, demands. I would think the one policy we're not going to work and integrate a number of policies or regulations uh, that government could consider. I wish that the government could continually to assist low to mid income families. Government may also consider to increase more social housings and for, uh, for helping the rent and for the low income families. And of course, right, um, another packages could be like recent government say, increase the infrastructure, which is a very good, uh, very good proposals. Therefore, some places, some remote area, right? And they can still, uh, where property price low, they can still right, encourage or stimulate some people willing to stay in some uh, remote area rather than all, all push you or come into the central or you know, the places where prices are really high. So all the packages should be you know, integrated together and single uh, policy doesn't work, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the government need to consider uh, from both demand and supply side, as well as uh, other uh, area to assist them, the um, minority group of families. You know, it, it often surprises me that there isn't more anger among younger people about the way in which their parents' generation has rigged the housing system against them. I think all the conversations like this that we're having, where the evidence is laid out on the table and dissected, um, nothing seems to change. And I've been saying the same sort of things for 40 years without persuading anyone who has the power to change things, to change things. And I'm happy to keep doing that, but I'm increasingly pessimistic that it's going to get anywhere. That's all for today's panel. Thank you to my guests, Janet Gurr, Matt Grudnoff, and Saul Eslake. You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends or leave a review. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week.